podcast of sermons by Pastor Charles St. Ange, LCMS Missionary in Montreal, Quebec, and the Caribbean. Grace, mercy, and peace be with you from God our Father and our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. You may be seated. Any of you that are a fan of the cult classic, The Princess Bride, probably know the very famous words of Enigo Montoya. Not, not the other words. The ones where, after hearing the word inconceivable being used over and over again, are where he says, I do not think that word means what you think it means. And thus it is probably with the most famous words in Scripture. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. What does the word so mean? Many of us say a lot, because that is generally the way we use so now. There is so much gravy on this plate it puts in. There is so much salt on this, I can hardly eat it. There is a lot of it, right? But is it possible that that word does not mean what you think it means? You see, way back when, when the authorized version was translated, the King James, as most of you know it in English, so often meant in this way and not a lot or much. And in fact, that is the way it's often used in the rest of the New Testament in our modern English translations. So in Matthew chapter 3, verse 13, as Jesus comes to John the Baptist to be baptized, and John the Baptist says, no, I should be being baptized by you, Jesus responds by saying, let it be so now. Let it be in this way now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 12, at the end of the Beatitudes, Jesus says, Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so, in this way, they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Or in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 11, where Peter says, For so, in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, some English translations, the New Living Translation, the Lexham English Bible, are willing to break with the King James and simply translate John 3.16, for this is how God loved the world, or for in this way God loved the world. But most of us, because of the belovedness of John 3.16, are unwilling to break with the ancient translation. Because it trips off the tongue, and we're just used to saying it that way, for God so loved the world. Now, why does it matter? Can it possibly matter the way we translate this word and get it right? I would suggest to you that it has always mattered, and of course it matters throughout Scripture, but it explicitly matters right now in this time that we are living through to really get this verse right. During a time of pandemic, during a time of crisis, during a time when people are asking the difficult questions, we want to be able to point people to the love of God. And to get it right. 
Because you see, if we translate John 3.16 and understand it as simply being that God loves the world a whole lot, in the same way that there is a lot of gravy on the putzin or a lot of salt on the chicken, there's going to be follow-up questions. If God loves the world so much, why are there genetic diseases inflicted upon children even in the womb before they exit their mother? If God loves the world so much, why are there stillbirths? If God loves the world so much, why do bad things happen to seemingly good people? Why did I pray to recover from cancer fervently? And I've always been part of worship, and I've always taken the Lord's Supper, and I've always tried to keep the commandments, and yet I'm dying anyway. Why have churches been praying around the world for the pandemic to pass us by? And yet it really hasn't in some people's view. Back in the 18th century, Europe was not exactly the most religious of places. Christianity was already starting to slip. Yeah, there was a a flourishing of some specific religious movements. Methodism came out of the 18th century. But it was also a time of a tremendous rise in atheism and agnosticism. Think of the time of terror in France and the Great Revolution, the end of the 18th century. During this time, though, one of the most notably religious places in Europe was Portugal. And its capital, Lisbon, was a center of Roman Catholic thought and leadership for a Europe that seemed to be sliding ever further away from our Lord. Yet on November 1st, 1755, All Saints' Day, at precisely the hour when many Lisboetas were at worship, the city was struck by an earthquake and tsunami that killed somewhere between 10 and 50,000 people, most of whom were killed when the walls of their churches fell on them during Mass. At that time, there were still a great many people that ascribed to the very simple view that when a nation is bad, God will punish it. And if a nation does what is right, then God will allow it to flourish. If that's the case, and if God loves his people so much, why Lisbon? Why Portugal? The same thing happened with Hurricane Katrina, if you want more recent history. You remember when that hurricane swept across New Orleans, there was a rush of people on radio and television who wanted to say, ha ha, look at New Orleans, Sin City, Mardi Gras. We know what happens down there, and God has struck them down with the hurricane. Didn't take long for more sane people to ask the question, if that's what God was doing, why is the French Quarter still standing? And it's the neighborhoods of New Orleans that were particularly Christian and poor that were the ones that were underwater. God loves the world so much. Tell it to the grieving mother or father. The pastor who just lost his church building to a tornado in Kansas or Nebraska, the friends of the murder victim who was just in the wrong place at the wrong time. 
That's what happens if we don't get John 3.16 right. But if we get it right, we have something to say of incredible eternal consequence to every one of those people we've just been talking about. Every single one of them. And it's why we want to understand what Jesus is saying. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, Jesus said, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For in this way God loved the world, that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. That's what Jesus is saying. He's not talking about some hairy-fairy love out there that maybe falls on us in a moment where we see a beautiful sunset or a beautiful sunrise. The love that we feel in our hearts when our cat comes and rubs our legs in the morning before we give them their food. It is precisely the love that God has shown for us in allowing his one and only son to mount a cross for us. Look at the Israelites and their ungratefulness. That's always the sin in the Old Testament, right? You'll notice that it was not because these Israelites out in the wilderness were breaking the fourth commandment or the sixth commandment, or they were coveting everybody else's manna. That wasn't why God sent the fiery serpents. It was precisely because they were ungrateful. Over and over again, God had demonstrated that he is the God who saves. He is the God who liberates and shows an undeserving people grace and mercy. Comes and not sides with Egypt and the pharaohs, but with the slaves. And says, I will set you free and give you a place where you might be my people and I might be your God. And yet time and again, time and again, the people of Israel questioned God's goodness, questioned his mercy, questioned whether he was on their side or not. And finally, God sends the serpents. And how are they saved from these serpents? Not by some magic medicine, not by some poultice that they can rub over top of the wounds and get healed, but God tells Moses to do this crazy thing. Take a bronze serpent, put it on a pole, hold it up in front of everybody, and say, if you look at that snake, you will live. What did it take for the people to do that? That crazy thing. Look on that snake for salvation. It took faith. God was restoring confidence in himself. Do this crazy thing and you will live so that you won't be tempted to think maybe it was the medicine. Maybe it was the plant that I harvested. Maybe it was the way that I rubbed the salve over top of the bite wounds. No, there is only one possible reason why I am now not dying from this serpent bite, and that is that I did what the Lord said. He provided salvation for me a salvation that I would never have thought of in a million years. What if we took a snake out of bronze and put it on a pole? Because that's the way God keeps saving us. 
finding ways to do it in which we can take no credit, in which we cannot boast, which we would never have thought of in a million years. What if God chooses to save us by allowing us to kill his son? That makes sense. And that is precisely how God loves the world. That's why we have crucifixes, churches. It's a crazy thing, a crucifix. If you've ever really engaged with a non-Christian, they say the most wonderful things because they speak profound truths that we have taken for granted. I remember well a non-Christian saying to me, you Christians are crazy. You have crosses up all over your churches. Do you know what a cross was? That was the way the Romans killed people. Would you put an electric chair up on the wall in front of your church? Would you put a gallows up there over top of your altar? We said, you get it. And they're like, well, what do you mean? I said, that is precisely why we have crosses up in our churches. And we don't adorn them with diamonds and gold and wear them around our thing like some kind of fancy jewelry. It is a simple symbol of what God has done to liberate us. And so Paul can write to the Ephesians and say, you were dead, beloved, in your trespasses and sins. You weren't like hurting or wounded. You were worse than that. You were far gone, six feet under, completely done in. There is absolutely nothing a dead person can do to bring themselves back to life. You know that? Nothing. And yet, Paul writes, because of the great love with which God loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive in Christ. By grace, you have been saved. What is God's great love? That while we were dead in our trespasses and sins, his son made us alive by grace. There's a fancy word. If you've taken classes with me or Bible study, you know what it means. Undeserved kindness. I am going to be nice to you, even though you have been nothing but mean and nasty to me. When you say you've been saved by grace, that's what you mean. I've been mean to God. God gives his one and only son to me. I have broken God's commandments. God shows me mercy. It's that simple. And our life, what do we do now? It is simply to live out what we will see on the last day, which is our resurrection. Our baptized life, where Jesus, before we could do anything, called us by name. Our communing life, where we who are unworthy servants come and kneel at the table and our Lord dresses himself and serves us. For we are now God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. How is the world going to know God's love when it sees our own crucified lives? When it sees that we are walking towards light when everyone else is running towards the darkness. When we are not afraid to have our evil deeds exposed so that the Lord can take them away. 
We are the ones who bring good news when everything else is bad. Bruce Coburn, whom hopefully all of you know, good Canadian singer-songwriter, wrote in his song, Birmingham Shadows, I wear my shadows where they're harder to see, but they follow me everywhere. I guess that should tell me I'm traveling toward light. As a Christian, he's talking about what it means to live the Christian life. It doesn't mean we are the light. And sometimes as we get closer to Christ, we only see more shadows. We only feel the snake wounds more. We only see the evil in the world more. But that's because of the brightness of the Christ who is holding us in his hands. The best work that we walk in may be our honesty. I trip over sin here, and I trip over sin there. Why? Because I'm a sinner. Does that surprise you? In a world filled with hypocrisy, we just name it and claim it. I, a poor, miserable sinner, confess that I have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed. I have not loved you with my whole heart. I have not loved my neighbor as myself. Guilty as charged. I'm not going to pretend. We are not the light. But Christ is the light, and we walk in him. We will not look for the love of God in false places. We will not try and find the love of God in places where God has said not to look. We're going to look for him in the strangest places that the world would never think of and point people to the places where they would never look. Bronze serpent mounted on a pole. A man from Nazareth dying on a cross. We are not the light, so we forgive each other our shadows. We'd rather be honest about our deeds and our hearts than hide. But we will carry out our works in God, which means looking up to the sun, which means looking up to the cross, to the one sign in the midst of our world that God does indeed love you and me, to the one sign in the world that God does love it. In the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. If you'd like to learn more, visit intheway.org. Thank you for listening. God bless your week.